0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Nicholas McDowell, author of the book Poet of Revolution, The Making of John Milton. Nick, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you, Mark, and and thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was
0: wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Sure. Uh, i this is actually, this, this month I'm just celebrating 20 years of uh, working at the University of Exeter uh, in the southwest of England. Uh, before that, I was a research fellow at Cambridge, and I did my doctorate at Oxford, and I was an undergraduate at Cambridge. Um, but before, before all of that, I was born and grew up in Belfast in Northern Ireland, um, in and, and lived there in the 70s and 80s. Uh, which which had a, a kind of profound effect on on me growing up, uh, trying to understand the nature, if you like, of uh, internal conflict and political and religious difference. And it's very much something that uh, has kind of shaped my my scholarly interests ever since.
0: Hmm. What was it that uh, led you to write a biography of John Milton? Because, as you explain in your introduction, there's already a number of of good books on him what led you to undertake uh, undertake such a uh, in, in some ways very daunting project
1: well that's that's quite true i mean there's a, there's a prosaic uh, uh, answer to that in that i was asked to do it by princeton university press um, who, who who approached me about writing uh, what they called an intellectual biography of milton um, and this was in a period just after the 400th anniversary of milton's birth uh, in 2008, uh, and there had actually been three biographies that year, I think, um, of, of various kind of types, uh, some high scholarly, uh, one a bit more popular. So I, I myself was slightly daunted by the prospect, given that John Milton may be, after Shakespeare, the most written about uh, English poet. Um, but I I did feel that there was a there were problems with all the biographical studies hitherto, certainly the, the 20, 20, 20th and 21st century biographies. Um, and, of course, research is constantly evolving. Uh, and I felt um, the time was right in the second decade of the 21st century for uh, for a new uh, interpretation, particularly uh, in this book, of how John Milton became politicized, radicalized, uh, whatever term you might want to use, how, how such a, um, on the surface, conformable middle-class young man uh, ends up being the spokesman for uh, a revolution uh, in England in the mid-17th century. Uh, and of course, then how he goes on to, to not only do that, but to write the greatest epic poem in English, Paradise Lost.
0: That for me was the first revelation I had when I was reading your book, which was the notion of how our understanding of Milton is still evolving. You think on the one hand, you're talking about a person who lived Four centuries ago you would think that there we've that like so many other authors we've we know everything that there is to know about him but as you explain we're still discovering things that we've discovered so much simply since that 400 year anniversary about him yeah. you mentioned in your introduction about how after you had sent the the, the manuscript to press it you mm-hmm. there is the discovery of the uh of what might be milton's copy of shakespeare's first folio with all of his notes in it
1: yeah no absolutely stunning discovery and i mean if anything was a reminder that still huge amounts of material out there even after 400 years that can be discovered that 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 was it i mean it, it was as you say uh, the discovery of of what appears to be milton's copy of shakespeare's first folio uh, in in uh, the fall of 2019 just as i was finishing this book and submitting it to the to the publisher i did manage to to, to refer to it a few times and in, in the introduction um, But you're right. I mean, one of the the reasons for that, and and this is true of many uh, figures uh, in the early modern, sort of pre pre 1800 period, uh, is that the the increase in digitization of libraries um, has allowed people to search uh, for what they're looking for in ways that, that, you know, even 20 20 years ago um, were very very difficult and so undreamt of by even biographers at the beginning of the 21st century, really. Um, and so, uh, yeah, things are always appearing. And in, in the book, I do try to take account of the discovery of a number of other uh, books uh, and archival uh, details um, about Milton. And I'm sure there'll be more will continue to be discovered. Um, but really, uh, some of them are, are quite uh, fascinating. The, the one, the shared discovery of his copy of Shakespeare is obviously uh, you know, a, a headline grabber. Um, but the one, and and we'll see what people make of that over the coming years. I'll have to take account of it myself in, in future work. The one I do try to make a some um, some mileage takes uh, make some mileage out of in in my book is uh, the discovery of Milton's copy of A Life of Dante, um, the great Italian uh, Renaissance epicist, in which uh, Milton is, is marks up passages to do with censorship and about the way that the state treats poets. Um, with whom uh, it disagrees or with with whom it identifies as politically uh, unorthodox. Uh, And because he was doing that in in quite an early stage of his life in the 1630s, that um, gave me a great insight into the process, if you like, of his growing sense of um, the relationship between a writer and a state uh, and a a government uh, and the processes of censorship and persecution uh, and how those play out uh, in, in, in history.
0: And as you make it clear in the book, that is so important understanding Milton, because it's one of the other things that for me was, was really fascinating to read about in the book, which was the degree to which that he that he was such a deep intellect, that he was so well read in, in a way that you really uh, it would not to denigrate other you know, poets and authors, but he really does seem, as you put it, to be the, the most you know, intellectual poet of English history.
1: Well, that, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the other daunting things, of course, for, for several years when, when people asked me what I was doing, and I told them I was writing a biography of uh, Milton, and particularly of his intellectual formation, they sort of looked at me as if I, you know, was, was deluded. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it is true to say that he probably is uh, the most learned of all English poets. Although, as I try to make clear in the book, I think by the, by the, severe uh, and, and hugely impressive standards of Renaissance intellectuals. Um, I think Milton himself always felt that he wasn't actually on the level of some of the great intellectual figures in the 17th century with whom he tried to become friends and whom he, he greatly admired. Um, you know, he, he's one of the things about Milton, which I hope comes out in the book, is that he's always um, thinking very hard about himself as a writer uh, and as a, an individual in history, Uh, And that's, that's you know, an unusual self-consciousness. And I think he's always thinking about, you know, how his place in history and literary history and and political history uh, will be seen and remembered and what what place he's making for himself. Um, And and one of the things he's he's worried about is that he doesn't actually have the learning and intellectual capacity that he needs to become the writer uh, and the intellectual that he wants to become. And he always looks enviously at, at other intellectuals around Europe. He goes to visit Galileo, for instance. Um, he goes to visit the great um, um, Dutch uh, legal thinker, uh, Hugo Grusius, in Paris. Uh, Grusius exiled from his homeland for his uh, religious beliefs, Galileo, under house arrest in, in, uh, in, in Catholic Italy. Um, so you can see already, of course, that he's interested in the relationship again between the intellectual and the state. But uh, yeah, I mean, he he, he's, he dedicates much of his early life to trying to live up to an image of the intellectual, which to us seems, um, you know, hopelessly utopian, perhaps. <laughs>
0: And it's so important uh, to uh, understanding him as you make clear, and this gets to that that, that question that you you've already mentioned, which is this notion of his his political views. I mean, he's very much a, a person who is engaged with his time. He's not just a writer writing irrespective of what's going on. That he's a person who is very much involved in in the uh, intellectual, the spiritual, the political currents of his era. And as mm-hmm. you explain, that's where you get to this you know challenge of how does that person who comes from this you know, solid, uh, respectable, stable middle class background become such a you know prominent and and even a radical uh, uh, public intellectual.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think that um, I mean one, one of the that is that is one of the key um, kind of rationales I have for writing this book, um, uh, as we mentioned a little earlier, is just to try and and try and um, offer a convincing narrative of how Milton becomes politicized and also to, to integrate that narrative with his poetic ambition, which is probably the one consistent thing To some well there are periods when he when he, he seems to leave poetry alone, usually when he's being employed as a, a political writer. but for the most part um, his po- poetic ambition is the most consistent thing in his life. So um, the two previous uh, the two major previous biographies of the 21st century, one came out in 2000 uh, by the great um, Harvard. Uh, Professor Barbara Lewoski, who sadly died a few years ago, um, called the life of John Milton, and that very much presented uh, Milton as someone who was always politically radical. Um, so Lewoski painted a picture of Milton, uh, whenever she could find any evidence at all for for trying to argue that he was always, you know, radicalized from a very young age. Um, that that's the, the picture she would present the reader with. So all his early contacts and so on, um, Lewalski, um tried to, to 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 represent as Stages in a radicalization that was deep uh, and had, you know, last, you know, something that took hold even in his teenage years. Um, and that, you know, his Puritan uh, beliefs, and Puritan is a word we haven't mentioned yet, but it's one uh, I spent quite a lot of time with in the book. His Puritan religious beliefs um, shaped his radical political beliefs, and a, and, and which eventually culminated in his support of the execution of King Charles I uh, during the English Civil Wars. Um, Swole'ski's narrative has the virtue of being linear and and comprehensible. We can see how, you know, the adult comes out of out of the boy. Um, the other biography of two thousand and eight by Gordon Campbell and Thomas Corns, um, John Milton: Life, Work, and Thought, presented a sharply different picture. Um, what they presented was an extremely conservative young man, conservative to the point of being anti-Puritan uh, in his uh, up until the late 1630s who suddenly then becomes a politicized writer when the English Civil War breaks out in 1642. Milton, by 1641, Milton's already taking up his pen to write against the Church of England uh, and eventually goes on to, to defend the execution of Charles I in 1649, uh, as I've said. So uh, for Campbell and Corns, they felt Lewalski had skewed the evidence completely and there was no evidence of any sort of political radicalism up until basically the point where he lifts up his pen and starts writing prose attacks uh, on the Church of England with the outbreak of the English Civil War. So I I, I thought neither of these narratives will do. Um, if you like, I, there has to be a more uh, convincing historical account that can take account both of his individual personality and his great poetic ambitions, and can also take account of his relationship to the development of the political and religious context in Civil War England. And so what I try to do is... Uh, look at, particularly in the 1630s, how after he left university, he spent quite a long time in university, uh, did an MA at Cambridge as well as a, as a BA degree, but after he left, he dedicated himself just to reading for the next six years. Uh, and I tried to use archival discoveries, the evidence of his own notebooks, um, to show how that was a crucial period as his reading, he went through a fairly orthodox um, regime of reading histories about Europe uh, particularly was particularly interested in history in that that period uh, and as he was reading these histories of, of Europe the English civil the, the English Civil War the origins of the English Civil War were were starting to to develop um, increasingly in 1630s the relationship between Charles the first and his Parliament um, was becoming oppositional um, Puritan religion was starting to to um, take on a greater profile in the, in the period, there was greater discontent with Charles I's religious policies. And so what I argue is that Milton's reading um, sort of starts interacting with the, the historical world around him, um, and he starts to read what's happening around him in the world in terms of um, that those histories of other countries, other places in Europe that have gone through political revolution or have gone through political disruption or persecution. Um, so I tried. I to Oh, sorry no, I just I, I try to position milton my my milton uh, as neither always radical or someone who just undergoes this sudden overnight switch to being a political radical but someone who can see intellectually his mind developing over the course of the 1630s in that crucial period that leads to the outbreak of civil war in uh, England and also Scotland and Ireland
0: there's an aspect of it that I also wanted to uh, uh, make clear for, for our listeners, which is that you also describe the context in which this is taking place, that the fact that it's not happening in a static political and religious environment, that at the same time, he you, you described the Jacobean consensus in which Milton grew up, and then by the time you get to the 1630s, you're seeing this polarization taking place, and it's the this, this sort of thing that's happening where people who are as intellectually and spiritually engaged as Milton are having to consider if there's a polarization, what side is he going to take? And, and, and that dynamic plays out in your book, just as you're describing as well his intellectual evolution.
1: Yeah, I mean, a great example of this is his earliest tutor, um, who's a Scotsman called Thomas Young, who Milton's father... Now, it should be pointed out that one of the reasons that Milton could could go away and read for six years uh, is that he his father was a very successful businessman, had made a lot of good deals, and as a result, Milton essentially didn't really need to work. Um, and so, you know you know, leisure... The, the leisure that he had to to read is an important thing to remember here, but but um, so his, his even before he went to to school in St Paul's School in London, his father hired a tutor for him, uh, and it was a clergyman, Scottish clergyman called Thomas Young. Now this is a you know, in Lewalski's narrative, in the narrative of Milton as a as a kind of always radical figure, always a developing radical. Young is presented as a Puritan who's somewhat at odds with the Church of England um who you know he he spent some time in Europe abroad as a chaplain, um, and this is presented by biographers like Lewoski as evidence that he was estranged from um, from the, the the situation the church in England this was after he tutored Milton um, in fact, what we discover is if we look at you know young without any sort of uh, preconceptions is the young was really uh, a perfectly conformable clergyman um, who uh, was employed by the Church of England. Um he was not a he's not a Puritan separatist in any way. He he may have been closer to he, he may have been what what historians sometimes now call the hotter sort of Protestant, i.e. he was slightly more morally zealous um than, than your average Church of England minister, but he certainly wasn't a, a separatist in any way. And indeed he was extremely learned in Latin uh, and classical classical literatures and, and Milton writes a Latin poem to him. To thank him for introducing him to the world of Latin uh, poetry. What does happen though with someone like Thomas Young is that, as this in the 1630s, as the situation worsens in England and Charles I First uh, and his um, Archbishop of Canterbury William Laud, who becomes a you know a central figure in the deteriorating uh, political and religious situation in England in the 1630s, and is eventually executed. Uh, by Parliament in the 1640s. Um, Charles I uh, and William Lord push the church um, and the government of, of a religious government of England in a direction that men like Young uh, were no longer happy with and could no longer conform to. And so Young does, in the end, by the early 1640s, become a prominent uh, critic of the Church of England. And indeed, uh, as I argue in the book, uh, Milton's first anonymous piece of political prose, or polemical prose, uh, was almost certainly um, the result of Young asking him to to contribute to a pamphlet that Young himself had written with some other uh, oppositional uh, clerics against the Church of England in 1641. So I think that's that's the real benefit for me of trying to set these characters in in the narrative of historical events uh, and, and using the historical detail to show how you know, as events change, also people's people's ideas change. And uh, you know, they have, they don't. People are not static all the way through their lives. I think we can all appreciate that. We don't all have the same opinions as a teenager that we do uh, when we're in our thirties or forties or afterwards. Uh, and so, what I tried to do in this cataclysmic historical moment of the English Civil War is to show how events do change the way uh, people believe uh, in, in political and religious ideologies.
0: I was wondering if you could perhaps take us back a bit to uh, Newton's uh, childhood. Why was it that his father was engaging tutors? Why was it that he was learning Greek and Latin? What sort of childhood did he have? And, and, and yeah. what, what was his family aspiring for the young John Milton?
1: Well, I mean, he seems to have had a very happy childhood, really. Um, you know, his father, as I said, became, was a wealthy scrivener uh, and uh, made a lot of money. Um, Milton... Had the best, you know, but also his father clearly did believe in in the the power of education, um, and and um, did everything. and Milton writes a Latin poem to his father, um, in which he thanks him for everything he's done for him. He acknowledges that his father was a crucial uh, figure in his education, arranging tutors to come in to teach him languages. Milton. Not only uh, was very proficient in Latin and Greek, probably even by the time before he, he even went to 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 secondary school to grammar school in London, he also knew Italian. He was he had some Hebrew. Um, you know he he became um, you know uh, polyglot uh, at a very early age, and he thanks he thanks his father for arranging these tutors. So I think you know I, there's nothing in and there's nothing to suggest that Milton's father either was nothing but a very sort of contented. Um, orthodox figure um, so there's really nothing in milton's youth to suggest uh, that you know that that the, the, the person that he would become um, and yeah i mean i you know i think i think as he as he points out in his own poem to his father his father was a musician as well as well as being a businessman he was a musician of some accomplishment um, and milton in this lovely poem to his father thanks his father and sees sees himself as a kind of orpheus figure the great uh, classical poet um Who's you know his father accompanying him on the lyre, uh, so already you know even he hasn't written very many poems at this point. He's he's thinking of himself as the great poet, but he remembers his father as uh, accompanying him uh, uh, with with uh, you know musical musical accompaniment, and he thinks of them both uh, together involved in the creation of, of poetry. So yeah, it was you know there's not it was a very happy childhood it would
0: appear. Was he always aspiring to be a poet, or was there another career path in mind for him as he was being tutored, and then as he goes off to to university?
1: Well, you know, of course, I've just said that that uh, you know we change over time, and we you know our our opinions change in relation to events around us, and I think that's that's entirely true. But one thing that and that really marks Milton out as unusual, I think, even amongst Renaissance poets. Is this degree of self-consciousness that he does seem to have from quite an early age about his poetic ambition? Um, probably becomes most prevalent when he goes to university. He goes to Christ's College in Cambridge, and I spent quite a lot of time in the book uh, reconstructing the curriculum there and the kind of figures he would have known, uh, because it's this point in at university when he has a real opportunity to display his learning, um, his facility in Latin, in particular. Um, you know, we don't his Latin poems are not, not the finest, you know, they're not the greatest Latin poems of, of the period uh, written by university students, but they attracted attention from fellow students. And he became known uh, as, a, as a, an accomplished writer. Um, and in, in, those, in those early university student poems, already you can see very much um, this sense that he has an image that he wants to aspire to of the great epic poet. Um, and I think that is one thing about Milton that that does persist, at least up until the point where he becomes political, uh, civil, a political writer and civil servant in the 1650s, and we might come back to that. Um, but yeah, un- an unusual degree of self consciousness, shaped if not you know shaped by um, um, movements in Europe, uh, the humanist movement that puts so much emphasis on education in languages and rhetoric and poetics. Uh, Milton, if you like, is one of its last great floorings uh, of the humanist emphasis on language uh, and poetry um, as as the characteristic of a virtuous person, uh, the, the mastery of of languages and and, and poetics as, as as the characteristic of a virtuous person. So I think, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, his his fellow students, famously, uh, uh, you know, some some listeners may may be aware of this. He Uh, was sometimes known as the Lady of Christ's College um, by his um, student, by other students in the college. And this has always been thought, you know, it must kind of signal some kind of uh, perceived effeminacy or, uh, you know, people were mocking him. Uh, But actually, uh, as I suggest in the book, it seems, in fact, to be modeled on Virgil, the great um, Latin epic writer, um, Virgil in biographies of Virgil which circulated in the period in which uh, you know Milton was growing up Virgil was represented as very much a kind of virginal figure sometimes known as the maiden um, you know he was very very abstemious from from uh, kind of sensual pleasures and it appears that Milton in his desire to become an English Virgil sort of modeled himself on the, the maidenish or a or, or, uh, 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 figure of Virgil and that's where the lady of Christ's uh, <laughs> A nickname seems to come from not necessarily from some kind of mockery by his fellow students, but a recognition that, you know, this is someone who, who wanted, from from even from the age of a student, to become the great English poet. Yeah,
0: it's one of the things that I was really thought was fascinating in your book. Because I mean, I, I think of Milton as a 17th century figure, and yet it was really uh, you know interesting the way that you present him as this as you pointed out, this this late Renaissance figure. And I was thinking that comes across not just when you're talking about his education, his intellectual development at that stage in his life, but also the uh, tour that he undertakes, uh, in particular to Italy, which which I thought was really fascinating because you think of on the one hand, given his, uh, you know, revulsion may be a little too strong of a word but given his opposition to catholicism you wouldn't mm. think of him as going to the very heart of catholicism yeah. to to uh interact with people and to and to uh you know discover and and, and to learn and, and yet he does that and as you make it clear it's it's part of that sense of himself as you know mm. as a renaissance humanist that that he is a person who you know embraces that tradition in 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 terms of his uh learning of classical languages and in terms of his embrace of the literature of the era
1: yeah no that's that's a good point I mean he looks it's funny he looks back on when he's writing he he has a, a number of sort of biographical accounts of himself that he he gives throughout his life and this is one of the, the challenges for a biographer of course because Milton sort of right tries to write his own life for you um, and so the challenge for the biographer is not to fall too much into that uh, kind of trap of, of, of believing everything Milton tells you about himself and, and, and it, it's seductive in many ways and I hope I've avoided it in, in the book but when he looks back on that trip to Italy which he took in um, 1638, 1639 um, just, so he sort of left England just as England was uh, or the, the whole actually of the, the, you know, the, 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 the British Isles was becoming uh, increasingly uh, you know, was starting to break down in terms of political and religious authority uh, and civil wars breaking would break out in sixteen forty two, but there were already you know battles going on in Scotland by sixteen forty. Um, so he leaves. He leaves. He goes. He goes away and does this tour of Italy. And certainly, um, it, you know, it, it was quite. It was fairly traditional for um, well, well-heeled, uh, you know, a well-off young gentleman to go on a tour of Italy as he or t- tours of Europe, uh, as he does. And it makes a lot of sense, and of course, to visit Rome. Uh, to visit Florence, the seat of Renaissance humanism. But funnily enough, when he looks back on his, his time in Italy um, in the 1650s, he writes what he's most concerned with is, is defending himself against, he says, you know, I, I went through Italy, but I, I avoided the seductions and temptations of Catholicism. I uh, you know even though they tried to tempt me into their religion, I, you know, I, remained, I remained firm. Uh, and there's a kind of hint that also, you know, there are kind of sexual temptations, which he also remained firm firm against. But actually we you know, one the way the way that um, he seems to have experienced the trip when it actually happened was that he absolutely and loved it. You know, he, he was invited he, he was invited into quite senior Catholic circles in places in, in Italy. Um had great intellectual conversations with um, with, with Italians. Um, and the the, the the religious confessional differences between them did not seem to be uh, a real issue in in the late 1630s, and I think you're right. It's very much there's a sense in in some ways that uh, the pursuit of learning is something that it should be supra-confessional, if you like. It should be above religious difference, um, and you know he he, he has no there, there's no um, animus against individual uh, Catholics. Uh, certainly, uh, you know it's it's more his sense of Catholicism as a um, form of authority. Um, a form of religion which he feels um, suppresses uh, wit and learning. Um, and so, you know, I think we can differentiate between his, his attitude towards Catholicism as a concept, if you like, or, you know, Roman Catholicism as a, uh, what he regarded as a persecutory type of religious government and his, his ev- evident enjoyment uh, and relish in, in exchanging intellectual, uh, no- I- 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 exchanging knowledge and ideas with um, Italian Catholics.
0: I would like to take us back a bit to uh his time uh in uh I- at Christ College and then uh, afterward when he's undergoing that period of self-development. What is he doing uh in terms of his writing to develop as a poet? What 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 uh, is he working on during this period? And what does this say about his uh intellectual development during this time?
1: Yeah, well I I very much see his time at university as a time of experimentation with different genres. So um, perhaps unusually, I, I you know, I, obviously I, <laughs> um, I, I'm of often, a, a, you know, a, an obvious admiration of Milton's uh, intellectual achievements, but I am, I, I'm quite clear-eyed about his university poetry, not all of which, you know, we <laughs> read it, today, we read it today because it's Milton's, um, but, you know, in, in itself, some of it is not the most constant or accomplished poetry um, that one could find, whether in English uh, or Latin. Uh, and then he also wrote in Italian uh, as well. So when he leaves university, he's actually, although it's hard for us to recover this, he's actually not particularly, He's he's got a small reputation as a poet when he leaves university. He's by no, and compared to some of his, his contemporaries, he's by no means um, applauded. Um, there are other contemporaries who I talk about in the book, minor poets like Thomas Randolph, who are now more or less forgotten, who died an early death, who was far more, um, praise at, at college uh, and at Cambridge than Milton was as a poet. There are others who some people might have heard of, like Richard Crashaw, who became um, a well-known religious poet and eventually converted to Catholicism, actually, in the 1640s. Much, much more successful as a university poet than Milton. So when he left, having, you know, a smallish body of work, some some great poems that we still read uh, on, on the uh, morning of Christ's nativity, uh, one of his early uh, devotional poems is still a poem that that that, that is is um, much read today and much commented on and is, is an example of his early talents but he hadn't really done very much you know he, he left 1632 he left cambridge uh, he's already um, well into his you know mid going into his late 20s he really hasn't done very much and then of course he goes away and and and, and writes for now six years now, he has a letter uh, in 1633 that he writes to a friend. We don't know who the friend is, although I suggest it was Thomas Young, his old tutor in my book, in which he he you know lays bare his sense of inadequacy that he hasn't um, achieved anything as yet. But at the same time, he doesn't want to go into the church, which is the obvious career route for him. Uh, most of the people he was at university with became clergymen. Um, and that was the obvious route for him, and he says he, you know, he doesn't want to, to follow that route, um, and he much he, he sets himself out as someone who's going to continue to pursue poetry um, rather than take the obvious uh, and, and easier uh, career route into the church. Um, and so he sets about, at that point, sets, sets himself this um, reading course, which I, I mentioned earlier, very intensive reading course, mainly in history, but in other areas as well. We're very fortunate to have one of his so-called commonplace books, which is essentially a notebook um, of his reading, um, one of the, one of those commonplace books survives. And so we can trace quite a lot of his reading, um, certainly from the mid-1630s uh, onwards. But he also, um, and I, su- I suggest in the book at this point, he's considering the possibility of being a kind of professional poet, uh, possibly even a playwright. Um, he His first major commission um, as a writer is a work that some people may know called um, known as Comus today after its kind of lead demonic character. Um, but it was originally known as a mask uh, performed at Ludlow Castle. And this was a kind of aristocratic commission um, that he was hired to do for the installation of the Earl of Bridgewater uh, on the border with Wales. Um, and he wrote uh, what was known in the period as a mask, which is kind of a theatrical performance involving music, um, song and dance, uh, Milton's version of a mask has a, has a lot more um, dialogue in it and, and it takes on some serious issues to do with chastity sexual temptation um, the, the, the proper way for an individual to behave when faced with temptation which are themes of course that, that you can trace right through Milton's career right up into Paradise Lost um, and, but, but that's about it that's about it really at this point you know he doesn't that commission doesn't really seem to lead to anything else um, People seem to like it, but there's not a, lot of, um, not a lot of evidence of how people reacted to it in the period. And so he really goes back again, after that early kind of experiment with drama, um, he goes back again into, into his reading uh, and doesn't really write much poetry up until the later 1630s.
0: You mentioned that he, over this period, he, he has this project gestating in his mind, this n- notion of this... Yeah. Uh, epic history of Britain and you as you describe uh, so much of his reading is 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 focused upon this and how it's from what he's gaining from this that you start to see him developing some of the uh, arguments and some of the materials that he's going to use once he becomes a polemicist in the 1640s
1: yeah so I think I mean the, the... He himself, I mean, what we can tell from his, there's another notebook of his poetic projects, which is now in Trinity College, Cambridge, which we also have, probably the most important kind of literary manuscript in English. Um, And in that, he outlines in the late 1630s, probably his idea that if he's going to write an epic poem, it's going to be on the Arthurian legends, uh, King Arthur and so on. Um, And really, he he does talk about writing uh, about the fall, uh, Adam and Eve and the fall, an original sin, but in the form of a tragic drama. Um, he does the title Paradise Lost does appear there, um, but in the form of a tragic drama rather than the poem. So the, his epic poem is going to be based on mythical English history, uh, and that's his idea. Um, it would appear right up into the early 1640s of what he's going to do. Um, but alongside this, he's he's reading intensively, as I said, in other uh, other types of history, and in his notes, um, his commonplace book. Uh, of that reading is divided up into different topics and some of those topics include um, you know censorship uh, tyranny kingship um, free circulation of books some of the the major topics uh, of his prose in the 1640s uh, particularly so you can start to see in a way he's reading his his course of reading is quite orthodox the the the, the, the authors he's reading are the kind of authors that any well-educated gentleman might read in the period. But what he actually is doing with the notes, um, and and this is where it's very, it, you know, the, again, there's the seduction of always reading backwards from the political radical back into his youth. But it, it certainly does seem to be the case, and I do do maintain this in the book, that you can see in the kind of notes that he's making that even if he hasn't really formed a kind of politically oppositional mind at this point, you can see that he, the notes that he's making offer him a kind of... Um, armory or arsenal of ideas that he could then call upon um, as as you know British history did turn uh, towards conflict and war so I see that period which you know poetically can look a little blank I actually see it uh, intellectually as absolutely crucial that period of the mid to late
0: 1630s you mentioned how you've already mentioned how uh, young uh, reaches out to him and solicits material that that appears in a pamphlet that, in effect, opens the way to Milton becoming a polemicist. Why was it that Milton chose to become a polemicist? Because as you described up to this point, he's very much focused on what we might think of as inward development and on on improving himself upon that intellectual exploration. And yet you have here his first sustained external engagement where he's really trying to go out and put his ideas out there. What was it that led him to make that leap? And and, 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 uh, what does he produce during this period?
1: Yeah, well, that, that's that's a really good question. I mean, that's that's that, that that's a crucial moment for me. Uh, I mean, you know, clearly there is there is a big difference between uh, sitting in your you know comfortable study, reading uh, about political history, and thinking, well, uh, how how this might be relevant to the situation taking place around you. There's a big difference then to, to, to moving from that to actually writing uh, political and polemical prose, um, which he starts doing in 1641. Um, as the situation really becomes uh, deteriorates quite markedly, and 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 the kind of sources of authority collapse, you know the Church of England basically dissolves, the court collapses, the king flees, uh, a civil war breaks out. So no, that, that that's a very good good question. I, I suggest that there's not just one simple reason um, for that shift, but a whole series of them. One I think is his growing sense that England was and this is where Catholicism is relevant, I think, I think there was a growing sense, one of the reasons the war breaks out is a growing sense amongst um, the hotter sort of Protestants in England, that that, that England under Charles I and Archbishop Laud is drifting back towards Catholicism. Now, for Milton, this means, from his reading uh, about European uh, and, uh, history and Italian history, this means to him uh, a kind of um, a, a withdrawal back into a kind of um, closed, uh, narrow intellectual sphere. So his reading about, for instance, I mentioned earlier about Dante and how you know, Dante had been censored uh, by, by the Catholic Church. He also, you know, Galileo, who he goes to meet uh, in Italy um, in his grand tour, who be, had been put under house arrest for, for his ideas um, by, by the Church. Um, and increasingly, you can see in his, I think I think one of the reasons intellectually why he shifts to an active polemical position is that he is increasingly anxious about the idea that, that England will drift into the kind of uh, persecutory tyrannous regime that he identifies with counter-reformation uh, countries, Catholic countries in Europe around him. So that's one reason, I think. Um, I think also that Thomas Young was still um, quite an influence on him. He could see that men whom he respected, like Young, uh, a very learned uh, figure who had taught him from an early age, he could see that people like Young were now becoming oppositional and and actually taking up their pens to write against um, the Church of England and and eventually the king. I think that uh, also persuaded him, um, and I think he was still in dialogue with with Young, um, and certainly his first, as I say, his first anonymous prose work is as part of one of Young's own writings. Uh, there may all be other personal issues as well. Um, there's some evidence, and this again is another piece of archival evidence that is comparatively recent, that um, there was a visitation of, uh, by, by one of the, um, uh, the kind of the ecclesiastical hierarchy under, under the Laudian Church, uh, Archbishop Laud's Church, to the church in which his mother was buried. His mother had died uh, in the 1630s. And that they demanded that um, his mother's grave, um, it was, was they said that his mother's grave was um, facing the wrong way, needed to be turned around, and that the pew of the Milton family was too high up and needed to be lowered within the church. Sounds like quite petty stuff to us, perhaps, and quite petty details, but these things mattered uh, in you know, 1630s England. Um, and so the Milton family had had their own uh, close encounter with, the kind of interfering, persecutory aspects of the church that was uh, being established under Charles I uh, hmm. and and Lord his Archbishop. So I think there's a, there's a there's a kind of bundle of things. There are things in the book I talk about. I think there's a bundle of things um, that that um, come together to turn him into someone who actively takes up the hand against um, against the the uh, status quo in England.
0: So, what does he argue in his works? Is he uh, arguing for uh, you know the execution of the king? Is he you know uh, at this point, or is he, or is he more religiously focused? Is he you know do you see a, an evolutionist position during this period, or does he pretty much stake out a, a point that he pre- holds pretty consistently to through all five of the uh, polemics that he writes?
1: You no, know, well, certainly. So, so his early, uh, so so the the early um, religious works. Um, 1641, 1642, are very much focused on the Church of England um, and they they attack the whole uh, hierarchy of bishops in the Church of England. Um, And they're very much focused on that. Um, They're they're also, of course, uh, you know, some of these pamphlets have remarkable digressions in which Milton just goes off tangent and starts talking about his own poetic ambitions and what he thinks, you know, tragedy should really be like, what an epic poem should be like. Um, And he's just going, you know, what people you know, what people thought, readers thought of these when they bought a pamphlet that seemed to be about, you know, the, the situation in the Church of England and how it had to be reformed and got instead Milton talking for many people <laughs> about, about, you know, what his own poetic ambitions and how he was going to write a great epic poem uh, and what the rules of an epic should be. Uh, it, it's hard to know uh, what, what the reaction was. Uh, you know, people must have been rather perplexed uh, by this. Um, but he did write, yeah, five. Five pamphlets altogether in that that brief flurry of his first political, um, the first flurry of his political life, um, but no things things do change. I mean, this is again like I've stressed with the the earlier part of the book, um, even the evolution of his ideas in relation to historical events is absolutely crucial. So there's abs- there's no really no suggestion in those early pamphlets that you know he's interested in overthrowing the king that would have been a very radical position to take in in the early 1640s and virtually no one took it but what you do see and i think a, a big crucial moment um and this is where my you know my the first part of my biography more or less finishes a crucial moment for milton is he gets married in in 1642 Now this is a rather surprising event in itself but he isn't in, getting into his late 30s at this point or his mid 30s um, he gets married in 1642. And as as some listeners may know, uh, famously, his wife left him after only a few weeks uh, of marriage. Um, And people were very surprised that he got married in the first place. Nobody was prepared for it. His wife left him after only a few weeks, and he set about writing a number of pamphlets in favor of divorce on the grounds of incompatibility between husband and wife. Up to that point, divorce was really on the grounds of adultery uh, it was kind of sexually defined. Uh, divorce was the only way... That, that was the only way divorce could take place. Milton, in what seems to us as a kind of far-sighted position, um, argued that if the if the married couple didn't get on with each other anymore, if they find they were not compatible, then they should be allowed to divorce. Um, and this is really a very surprising thing for him to do. You know, there's not... There's very little to prepare for this. Although so he does... Again, if you go back to his notes from the 1630s, divorce is one of the topics in which he's more interested in. So again... You know, he's been reading about divorce and he has a he has a kind of litany of quotations and sources that he can cite when he comes to defend his position on divorce. Um, but really, it's it's quite unexpected, um, this 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 shift. And so I think this is where maybe the personal and the political combine. Um, what Milton was astonished by was the reaction to his arguments on divorce. He was absolutely pilloried for them by both sides, uh, by both by the Puritans and the parliamentarians on the one side. Uh, and by, you know, the, the the Church of England figures against whom he'd been writing uh, earlier. And this leads to a real disillusionment with, on his part with people, indeed, including Thomas Young, his great his great sort of um, mentor uh, earlier in his career, who are part of the Puritan uh, opposition. He becomes essentially an anti-clerical at this point um, and, you know, is, is, has has no time for either side in the kind of religious debates um, of the 1640s. And I think this is the point, And he goes on then to write *Ariopagitica*, his great argument for the free circulation of ideas in print. Um, and he's prompted into doing that by the reaction to his own uh, pamphlets on divorce. Uh, people in Parliament were calling for them to be burnt, uh, for him to be uh, himself, um, you know, brought before Parliament and prosecuted for publishing those tracts. So *Ariopagitica*, which is uh, you know one of the great works in the Western liberal tradition in favor of free speech. Um, and the kind of marketplace of ideas comes directly out of that kind of per- that clash between the personal uh, and the political experiences uh, through the divorce tracts. Hmm.
0: Well, I apologize if you're getting a little tired of this question, but how's volume two coming along?
1: <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, so, so, yeah, I should be clear that yeah, this, this uh, Poet of Revolution is, takes us to the first, first half of Milton's life from 1608 uh, to 1642. And I leave just at the point. I stop just at the point where he gets married. Um, so that uh, bit about just been talking about the divorce tracts is to come. Uh, the beginning of the second volume, which will take us right through to his death in, in 1674, and obviously encompass the thing I guess for which which Milton of course is best known, which is 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 his poem Paradise Lost. Um, so volume two is is about a, is about a third to just over a third already written, um, and I'm hoping to. Um, submitted to Princeton University Press in 2022, end of 2022, um, beginning of 2023 at the latest. So hopefully it'll be out 2023 to 2024. Um, And of course, it it presents its own challenges. I want to continue that sense of a narrative of an evolving personality in relation to events. His life only gets more tumultuous uh, as he, he in 1649, as I mentioned earlier, he defends the execution of Charles I. One of the, the, the first people to do this, he offers perhaps the most radical defense of anyone. Um, and then he gets employed by the Republican government uh, and by Oliver Cromwell in the 1650s to be a kind of propagandist and civil servant and works for the, the Republican regimes right through the 1650s until in 1660 the, the monarchy is restored, and, and, and Milton is at risk of his life. and only just about escapes with his life. he's in prison for a while. And at that point, he, you know, he, he turns to finishing uh, Paradise Lost, which is a very different poem than the, the Arthurian epic that he first envisaged writing.
0: Well, don't let me keep you from uh, writing a second longer than <laughs> I have, because I'm really looking forward to reading it. Uh, Nicholas McDowell, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you.